Welcome to episode number 77 of the Exploring Antinatalism podcast, a podcast showcasing the wide range of perspectives and ideas throughout antinatalism as it exists today through interviews with antinatalists and non-antinatalist thinkers and creators of all kinds. Now running four years strong, I'm your host, Amanda Sukunik, and today I'm speaking with the author of several fascinating papers on the subject of antinatalism, including Between Iron Skies and Copper Earth, Antinatalism and the Death of God, Wailing from the Heights of Velleity, a strong case for antinatalism in these trying times, A Sonogram of the Dark Side of the Tao, the Possibility of Antinatalism in Taoism, amongst others, Robert Zenbergen. Robert, welcome to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. I've been reading your work on the subject of antinatalism for quite some time now. You really have been uh, fairly prolific on the subject, having produced at least six academic papers on antinatalism over the last few years. Robert, I want to say first off that your papers, it's, this might be a small point, but it's worth mentioning, I think. Your papers have some of the best titles I've ever read in my life. Um, and even where I disagree with you sometimes within the body of your work, there's a, an undeniable poetry to your writing uh, that makes it a pleasure to read every time. Um, if, if we can start out with just the most basic of questions, may I ask, who is Robert Zenderberg? Well, thank you very much, Amanda, for having me today, first and foremost. Um, good to talk to you. I've been a big fan of your podcast as well these past couple of years. So it's uh, thank you for having me on today. Uh, as to my introduction, my name is Robert. I'm a philosopher. I specialize in Eastern and Western philosophies. The last couple of years, maybe a bit more the Western side of things, um, in particular, the ancient Greek and Roman philosophies. Uh, but of course, I'm, I'm, I'm very busy with antinatalism too. Um, so I just, yeah, study a lot of things I, I, I'm interested in. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's me. In a nutshell. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Robert, why are you or are you not an antinatalist? So I would uh, probably describe myself as a non-practicing antinatalist. Um, I agree with the truth of some of the antinatalist conclusions, but I don't want to put them into practice myself. Um, so granted, yeah, everything that's, that's being said is, is very good, but I don't want to commit myself to the, you know, to not having kids. I do want to have kids eventually. So that's, yeah, that's a pretty much a deal breaker, isn't it? If you have kids, you can't really be an antinatalist. Although I think now you could also, yeah, we could broaden the, the, the scope of the categories a bit. Maybe you could be an antinatalist with kids, but it's going to be a bit tough. It's like having, being afraid of spiders, having eight legs yourself or um, <laughs> something like this. Living in a skyscraper, being afraid of heights, it just sounds a bit hypocritical, a bit conflicting. But uh, so, I, yeah, perhaps I would just, leave it at this and call myself uh, a non-practicing antinatalist. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, there are certainly uh, antinatalists with children. Uh, there's quite a number right. of antinatalists that had children before becoming antinatalists. I can't say I know of too many that have um, that have had children after, you know, learning about antinatalism, but there are some that have adopted um, right. Yeah. Of course. So yeah, 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 there, there, yeah. there's certainly a lot of variation to this thing, and there's, sure. there's certainly a lot of ways that people are existing as antinatalists. So 
Uh, you know, I, I actually haven't heard too many people uh, describe it in such a way as a non-practicing antinatalist, but I find, <laughs> I find that really interesting. Um, yeah, and, and, yeah and, and, and this has clearly been a subject that has uh, been of great interest to your work. I mean, how, you know, how did you become interested in the subject? When did you first learn about it? Um, and why do you feel that it's such an important idea? I mean, it's, it's really, it, it seems like it's something that's really inspired you. And, and I'd, lo- I'd love to yeah. hear more about that. Yeah. No, absolutely. So I think I... I took the traditional road to antinatism. Um, it was uh, Schopenhauer. I started reading Schopenhauer at an early age. I didn't quite get it, but I, I kept coming back to Schopenhauer. Um, and then there's clearly a lot of antinatalism before antinatalism existed in Schopenhauer's work. I feel that this is underlighted in the antinatalist community. For instance, Professor Benatar, he, he refers to Schopenhauer a number of times, but there's not a clear... Um, sort of sense of indebtedness or paying lip service to Schopenhauer. Um, but you do see a lot of the stuff that you see in later antinatist texts in his work as well. So this got me interested. And um, yeah, just randomly came across antinatism maybe in 2015. Um, so read all the classic works, the articles, the books, and uh, thought it was pretty impressive. And uh, yeah. So yeah, like like I said, like the orthodox route, the Schopenhauer brought me to the arms of uh of antinatalism. And I guess for most people now, it's like, it's more like societal things, civilizational things, cultural things, discontent, concern with the environment. Um, I think that's what pushes most people towards antinatalism. Uh, for me, it was purely philosophical, I would say. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I sort of have to agree with you. I think that, you know, are our, our, the number of people identifying as antinatalists now is is massive compared to when I first started in 2010. You know, if you yeah, look at the yeah. subreddit, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, yeah. And I think it is, unfortunately, a, a bit of a minority of people who are attracted to the philosophical literature, to the history of it. It does, you know, there, there are all of these different groups that have kind of co-opted their place within antinatalism, like anti work and all of these different things that sort of bring people to an antinatalist perspective is really interesting but it's good that you started with the classics so wonderful um uh, (laughs) outside of antinatalism um what are your other areas of philosophical and academic interest right so at the moment i'm mostly doing hellenistic philosophy so that's basically philosophy from about 300 bc um so stoicism epicureanism these are big topics uh there's going to be aristotle plato um, I used to be pretty big into what uh, what would be called existentialism, but it's a bit of a lame label, right? What is existentialism? But, you know, Nietzsche and Sartre, those, those are people I like to study as well. Freud has been a constant companion for the past 15 years or so. Um, and then, of course, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer. So I would say Schopenhauer is definitely like number one. Um, yeah, Nietzsche and Freud, probably number two and three then. So that in addition to the antinatalism stuff is is mostly what I'm doing. So it's either good or it's pretty sad, but <laughs> that's just what I like to do. No, I don't think it's sad at all. I think it's wonderful. And then and then in addition to that, you also study Eastern philosophy, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well. yeah. So mostly mostly Taoism. But I've done my fair share of Confucianism and Buddhism. Uh, but Taoism is really what I'm mostly interested in in that part of the world. So excellent. And we'll talk a little bit more about your research yeah, that yeah, in just yeah, a little course. while. What amazing, sure. amazing. Yeah, so you cover a great deal of ground. That's 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 really wonderful. Um, I so now, to. yeah, wow, no, you, you certainly accomplished it. <laughs> um, so now I'd love to speak uh, to you in some depth about uh, you know your papers. Um, I wanted to say real quick to our audience, 
we could easily spend an entire two hours just talking about only one of these papers. Um, they're, they're very densely packed with all kinds of great material worthy of being discussed in detail. For the sake of time, I have essentially chosen only a few questions per paper. Robert, I hope that this uh, has been a wise choice in attempting to present a bit of a, a bit of an overview of your work on the subject, um, but we'll do our best to cover as much ground as possible. Um, and I, of course, highly encourage people to follow the links below where they can find each of the papers so that they can read them for themselves. Um, your first paper on the subject of antinatalism was called Between Iron Skies and Copper Earth, Antinatalism and the Death of God. Um, if you don't not mind, I'd, I'd love to read the abstract. Is that is that all right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Okay, awesome. Abstract. The proclamation of the death of God came at a pivotal time in the history of humankind. It far transcended the concerns of the religious faithful and dented the entire fabric of human existence. Left to its own devices, Humans intended their consciousness to replace God's. This proved to be a terrible mistake that collapsed the entire modern project. One of the worldviews that emerged in the wake of this eruption was antinatalism, which refers to the conviction that human reproduction should be brought to an absolute halt. This is the most modern outgrowth of the death of God and represents the most radical face of secular humanism. In spite of the admittedly dark fumes that leak out of the term antinatalism, this philosophical position emerges quite naturally when we consider the depletion of our traditional sources of philosophical inquiry. So that's the abstract, and I have quite a few quest uh, specific questions uh, that I want to get to in a bit. But can you just tell me a little bit, uh, you know, I'm just really curious how this specific paper came to be, um, and maybe a little bit about, you know, its reception. Right. So first of all, I'd say you were... Uh... You weren't lying about uh, my papers being dense because that sounded pretty dense. I'd never heard this read out to me like this before. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it is, right? That was my first paper. So I had been reading antinatalism for, for, for a number of years. I've come across a few people that are really diving into the history of the movement. Um, I'm sure you know these works as well, but there's a lot of people who who find antinatalism in ancient Buddhism and Brahmanism, in, in Greek literature, in Sophocles, um, and these guys... Um, I, this never satisfied me, like this hunt for antinatalist utterances in, in, in sort of random words. So I wanted to really see where this movement came from um, and not just look at specific instances of, of, of citations that came across as antinatalist. Um, and then I started thinking about this death of God motive and hypermodernity and this kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, I, it, that's where I, I, I localized it in sort of this 19th century secularization drive if we can call it that. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, yes, certainly. Um, there's a lot of, there's a, there's sort of a dividing line that like uh, antinatalist historians like uh, Kareem Akurma make between, yeah, um, yeah. you know, contemporary antinatalism and proto-antinatalism. Mm -hmm. And in, um, I know that you reference, um, what is his name? Aaron Matz, Metz or something? Or, um, he wrote, uh, the novel, The Problem of New Life, um, you know, he makes that distinction, too, that like, you know, just because yeah. people sort of say antinatally things in the past doesn't really mean that it's a one to one comparison with contemporary antinatalism. And right. that is an important yeah. point to make, certainly. Um, so, yeah, so I, 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 I really there was a lot that um, was familiar to me in this paper because, you know, the, the, the form of the iteration of antinatalism that I was first exposed to was very heavily and concretely atheistic, you know, uh, like antinatalism was the last stop on 
there is no the, the, the there is no god train <laughs> uh which yeah. is sort of a a different side of the same coin i think to maybe what you're saying the difference is that i i sort of see that as a great thing um not mind you because it's a part of some rosy interpretation of reality uh far from it i think it's it's great that the world grows more liberated from the idea of god because i don't think humanity can solve real problems under you know, totally false assumptions about reality. Um, and that ideas like antinatalism and extinction, animal rights are really like excellent tools in the pursuit of human beings finally doing this existence thing, you know, maybe the right way. So I'm curious about what your thoughts on that are. Um, but also, I mean, you know, if God had not died, um, why would we be living in a better world? Because I think that's part of sort of what you're saying in the paper is that when once once God died, or once we moved away from the concept of God, then there was all this failure and antinatalism is maybe part of that failure. Yeah, right. So um, first of all, for full disclosure, I don't think God has died, but clearly there was a like a big thing in the 19th century and beyond. Um, so I think certain things have to happen in order for something like antinatalism to 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 rise. I don't think anti-natism could have emerged at any earlier time in history. Um, so it could not even have, have, have emerged in the late 19th century. Like it, it had to happen now, like late 20th century. That's when it started becoming a thing. Uh, and many things had to happen. So many of the, the darker things associated with modernity had to progress in order for this to, uh, to, to, to be able to rise up. Um, so that's why I also think it's interesting. And one of the main things that fascinates me about anti-natism now is not so much the philosophical sort of weight of the ideas, but the place that it has in culture, the relation it has to certain civilizational processes, um, sort of the, the bigger picture. When you look down from this ivory tower and you see anti-natalism walking around in the marketplace below, um, that's what fascinates me most, um, especially how it relates to all these processes, like the, the so-called death of God, modernity, secularization. Um, I think the place of anti-natalism is, is, is fairly interesting in this bigger scheme of things. Picking up on one thing that you said, um, you know, that that antinatalism perhaps couldn't have emerged, you know, um, until until really quite recently. Um, yes, you do say in the essay, uh, it is inconceivable that a conviction like this could have emerged in an atmosphere defined by the presence of God. But in fact, um, a good deal of anti-procreative thinking existed when God was quite alive and well. Um, there have been though they're not they though we could not call them antinatalists as we know antinatalists to exist today the Ancretites, the manichaeans the bogomils the cathars arguably um if they existed uh, and other gnostic christian sects i mean had some very antinatalist thinking going on in their christianity i mean even coupled with perhaps not veganism but a bit vegetarianism which is you know pretty pretty close, pretty similar to what you find in, in antinatalism today. So considering that, how, how do you account for that level of antinatalism existing in history? Right. So for me, there can be sort of parallel parallels with, uh, with the antinatalist movement, but you're only an antinatalist if you live nowadays and you've, you've read the necessary books, uh, only if you're part of this sort of unofficial international community of antinatalists, are you an antinatalist? Um, so you need to be carrying your card at all times, pretty much. But I, 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 I'm fascinated by all these attempts to look for antinatalism, say, in a text from 2000 years ago. I don't think that's necessarily a very productive undertaking, to be honest. Like, you can find 
anti-natist utterances in, in, in poetry from different traditions, it doesn't make it anti-natist. I think anti-natism is a very clear development over the past 2000 years. Um, and we have a very clear product now that is anti-natist. Um, so not everything else is can be grouped together with this anti-natism, I think. What what would you what do you think of as sort of the dividing line? Would you would you just say right. would you say that it's asymmetry? Would you say that it's the presence of uh, concern for extinctionism? I mean, what 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 are the clear defining marks between proto antinatalism and what we call antinatalism today? Then, so I think there's three elements that all need to be present. So first of all, there's the diagnosis that life is all about suffering. Then there's the solution that if we don't exist anymore, if we're extinct, we're not going to have these problems anymore. And then there's the very practical avenue towards that, which is refraining from, 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 from giving birth to children, right? So if you have these three elements, um, that makes you an antinatalist uh, these days. So we can find these, these, these elements in earlier philosophical works and literature, but they're never present all at the same time. Um, Schopenhauer comes very close, but still it's, 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 we really see this developing um, in the work of David Benedict. And uh, I don't know if you have many people who, who would disagree with that here, uh, but that, that, that's how I, how I think about it. That's how I view the anti-natalist movement these days. So these three elements under the umbrella of, of, of you know, calling yourself an anti-natalist or viewing yourself as a part of the anti-natalist movement. Yeah, I, I think I definitely see what you're saying. I mean, what what would be your assessment of something like the wisdom of Salinas? You know, because that that definitely yeah yeah there there is not only a recommendation that it'd be better to not exist, but there also is a recommend a, sort of a pro mortalist recommendation too that yep. it would be better sure. to exist you know not not exist right now. Um, yeah. So, do you think that that would be a fairly antinatalist statement? You know, compared to contemporary antinatalism, or or no? Right. So Silenus is someone I write about. I think I'm, I'm very fascinated by Silenus, of course. I think many antinatalists are because it sounds very antinatalist, right? This idea that it would have been better if we, we weren't here is something you, you read in Benatar's 2006 work. Like it's just basically a, a, an elaboration of that theme. Um, so I used to be tempted to view something like the wisdom of Silenus as antinatalist, but I think we have to be strict and we have to keep the gate closed. Um, for these earlier texts. So nowadays I'm, I'm more strict. I don't view it as anti-natism, but there's many instances that kind of make me doubt. Another one is um, Hegesius. Do you know this uh, guy, right? So a hedonist, but probably one of the most uh, pessimistic hedonists. He literally persuaded people to kill themselves. And he was, uh, his books were banned. He was, he was fired from his teaching in Alexandria. Um, a recent historian joked that this is the first instance of uh, of an academic who had his or her freedom curtailed by the government. Probably not going to be the last one either. But um, I mean, he literally convinced his students to kill themselves because happiness, well-being, fortune, these things are inaccessible in life and life is all about suffering. Um, so that's why we have to kill each other or ourselves. Sorry about that. Um, so, I mean, it is sort of anti-natus, but again, it, 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 it cannot, we cannot allow these these people to sort of enter the uh, the anti-natalist movement nowadays. So I would keep them all outside of the house, but there's interesting parallels between their work, their sayings, and what we now call anti-natalism. So there's definitely, yeah, there's definitely some clues, but I think we have to be strict and uh, just enforce a no entry uh, policy for anyone before let's say 1995 or so. 
That's, I mean, I listen, I, I don't want to harp on this point too much, but I really do legitimately find that really fascinating. I, I, I right. guess I, I guess I, I guess I am a bit more permissive as to, you know, allowing a lot of the proto antinatalism to, right. to, to, to have some place in, in the antinatal world now. I mean, chiefly because I don't think that what antinatalism is currently is particularly solid. I mean, it might, it, the, the, the formulation of um certain iterations of antinatalism are quite solid coming from specific philosophers like i'm not, I'm not in, in no way making the claim that david benatar's antinatalism is not solid as far as you know his the work that he's created but the identity of antinatalists is so all over the place and what the, the differences in, in you know what antinatalists believe even in contemporary times is so all over the place that it it seems a little um a slight a, a bit of a mistake to you know uh not allow some of these older utterances because it was sort of as 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 far as the past would allow people to go i mean i, I think i think there there is a there is a maybe a bit of a um a truth in the fact that you you just you just couldn't speak these ideas in in a more um Right. detailed form you know in the past um but anyway i mean i really appreciate your thoughts on that um i mean it, you do. I don't remember in which paper, but you do speak a little bit about defining antinatalism. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I, I again, I, I I'm not sure which paper that was in, but um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you define antinatalism because as you as you as I, as you likely know, there is no standard English dictionary definition of the term yet. It it, it actually at this point only appears in um two french dictionaries online right and that's yeah, it yeah so how, yeah, how would you define antinatalism yeah i would um disconnect antinatalism from reproduction i think what's the core of antinatalism is the diagnosis that life is terrible that life was not supposed to happen that life cannot be good we can try all sorts of things we can be religious we can become transhumanist uh but life is not getting any better the definition of our lives is just that it's it's horrible we suffer um, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Uh, there's no way out of this except for extinction, of course, but that's a bit of a tough act to follow. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's really about the, the pessimism that human life is not that great. Um, it can never be great, in fact. And it's, uh, yeah, it's sort of, it, it, it demands pretty serious reflection. And then an outgrowth of this or a consequence of this or follow-up, we can even say, um, is when we bring reproduction into this and we say, okay, a very practical uh, way to deal with this problem, to rectify the situation is by just not having kids. So many people focus on the, the reproduction part, but I, I think that's only a secondary part. The starting shot of antinatalism is, is really this grim observation that life is, is, is horrible. Um, and then of course you can ask yourself, is that just conscious life, is that human life, is it all life? Um, for me, it's just conscious human life. Um, and then, yeah, one of the solutions to this problem is, is is putting a cap on reproduction or banning it outright or just persuading people gently, um, you know, to not reproduce because of the moral dilemmas. But for me, the, the diagnosis is one. And then um, the second part, the second chapter is this, this sort of road towards that. And that's what I find innovative because people have been lamenting about how difficult human life is for millennia. But this is the first like real sort of solution that's offered. And I think that's quite genius that you tie this to um, our slow extinction. And I guess there's also a lot of people who 
who wish to not focus on the extinction part, the suffering part, the diagnosis part. They focus just on reproduction. Um, yeah, I have a few thoughts about those 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 people active in antinatism. I, I I just disagree with them. I disagree with them too. So I'd love to hear your cool. thoughts on that. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, maybe I'm a little bit too strict when it comes to this. Maybe it's because I'm uh, you know non-practicing antinatalist. Um, I don't know why, but uh, yeah, just uh, I we have to separate. We have to clearly give our boundaries when it comes to defining antinatalism, because it's like you said before, it's we're still in this ongoing process of defining what ex exactly it is. So that's why I think it's important to have clear definitions. Um, so, yeah, diagnosis, life is all about suffering. There is a way out. Uh, it's our own extinction. And so that's, uh, yeah, that, that would be my most basic definition of this. How, yeah. Just out of curiosity, how, how would you define it? What would be your like clearest I mean, I, I, I think the most basic, um, I, 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 well, first of all, let me just say, I think it's, I think the idea of separating reproduction from antinatalism is, I, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody quite articulate it like that. I don't know that I agree. I mean, because I think that it's, it's not only a diagnosis that life is, has all of these negatives, but it, 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 it firmly rests on the idea that to, imp to impose it is unethical. Um, right. So so therefore, I, I mean, I think that the reproduction angle is in, in, incredibly intrinsic to to the di to the diagnosis of it of it being a, all, all, of all this negative. Um, I don't think that you, that we can separate the extinctionism at, at all, and it, it it often confuses and frustrates me a lot that the antinatalist right. community typically does that. I mean, you you know, you typically find a sort of if not an anti-extinction sentiment in antinatalism it's just it just sort of sweeps it under the rug and so what are we really talking about here we're talking about a, a sort of a quasi pronatalism then i mean at what point do, do, does an antinatalist start saying an antinatalist of that kind anyway start saying that yeah we should probably reproduce children at some point <laughs> um i don't know and you never really get a clear answer to that to that question um right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just always been particularly clear to me that extinction is is the mantra in the antinatalist community that you often find is that extinction is the consequence and not the goal. And right. I, that just never really made any sense to me. I mean, I, I don't, yeah. I, especially yeah. when it comes to antinatalist activism, if you're advocating something that you know in the long term is going to cause extinction, then I, I just don't know how you how that parses, you know, what, at what point do you stop advocating for it then? At yeah, what point yeah, are yeah. you, you know, so uh, do you have any thoughts on that before we go on? But yeah, I, I definitely do agree with your sentiments on that. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, that's fair enough. I, I keep telling everybody it's all about extinction and uh, people keep, I think people are scared of it because extinction of human species is you can't formulate anything that's more grim, more sort of extreme, more radical than this, right? People used to plead for, you know, like the, I don't know, removing suffering any other way, but now you, you want to eradicate the entire human species. There's no coming back from this. So it's, it's one of the most radical things, the most radical thing I would say you can, you can offer the world. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think a lot of this is fear. Oh. There's an incredible amount of yeah. fear in the antinatalist community. And I think that's, that's a, that's a huge, that, that's the explanation really. Um, I mean, join, uh, continuing from that, I mean, do you, I get a sense sometimes reading your papers, and perhaps I'm just picking up on something that's not there at all. But I mean, do you see antinatalism as sort of a, like a tragic and perhaps dangerous idea? 
Is that is that part of the sentiment that you're that you you feel that you're communicating? Well, technically, I don't think it's pessimistic or tragic at all. I think if you look at the work of David Benatar, for instance, for him, it's it's salvific. It's it's hopeful, right? He wants to eradicate suffering. Uh, the only way we can do this, and we've tried stuff for thousands of years, it never works. We keep getting you know, back to the same point where we suffer, we suffer, we suffer. The only way to conclusively fix this problem is by, by making us extinct. Um, so I think there's definitely a hopeful component there, even though we're talking about the grimmest subject of all time. Um, I think it's tragic only in the sense that many anti-natalists agree that it's going to be very tough to convince people gently to give up reproduction. Like, and that's the definition of tragedy. Something bad happens, but you cannot do anything about this. So I would say ultimately antinatalism responds to the tragedy of modernity. We have all these problems that we cannot fix, but in itself, it's salvific. It's meant to be a medicine for our ills. It meant, it's meant to rectify the great wrong of our existence. So it, it has an interesting relationship with, with tragedy, but I don't think it's it's that tragic, even though it deals with very specifically tragic topics like the extinction of, of the human species. Brilliantly said. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just wanted to point out one really excellent line. Uh, Antinatalists will be asked about suicide as often as, as a comedian will be asked to tell a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. words were never spoken. Boy, right. howdy, is that ever right? Um, you, Good you to know, pick this up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I'm. That's just absolutely fantastic. Um, you, you don't really get into this much in this particular essay, but, but you know, in several of them, you do defend that antinatalism is not pro mortalist, and I was just, I was curious to hear more of your thoughts on the antinatalism pro mortalism connection because this is this is becoming one of the most prevalent um yeah. disagreements uh, in within the community there's many antinatalists now who identify as pro mortalists as well as antinatalists yeah. um and i i just find that fascinating so yes i'd love to hear your thoughts on that so i think technically if you want to be consistent and you identify as an as an antinatalist i think much can be said about the pro mortalism that you must adopt because, uh, for instance, Professor Benatar, he's, he admits that it's nobody's going to find this very persuasive. The majority of people are not going to find this persuasive ever. So um, it, it, given this, it's, it's, it's bound to fill, right? As long as, as, as let's say, 95% of all people are going to keep reproducing blindly, I would say. Um, so pro-mortism would be good to achieve this goal of, 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 of having no suffering, uh, which also implies you know, us being dead. Um, but of course, you can't accuse antinatalists. Like, I, I'm not a pro-mortalist. I, I don't want to persuade people to kill themselves. I don't think it would be good. Uh, it would make antinatalism a lot more successful if there was some degree of force, right? If you could forcefully sterilize people, yeah, we, we could easily achieve the goals of, of not having suffering anymore. But of course, as, as Benatar also points out, it's going to lead to a whole lot of problems that are going to be very difficult to solve. So I, 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 yeah, I'm a little bit annoyed by people who assume an antinatalist must be pro-mortis, but at the same time, there's some truth to this, right? If you are pleading for the uh, the extinction of the human species, um, yeah, it's going to be tough to be nice about this. You can't really be a nice guy when you're you're preaching extinction, I would say. Oh, I'm so 
know about that. I think you can kindly preach extinction, but I, I should have asked right. this. I should have asked this uh, before this. I mean, how, how how exactly are you defining promortalism? Because it's interesting that it does. Promortalism seems to cover a lot of ground. I mean, you know, David yeah. Benatar sort of Im- implies that it means a, a killing extinction is what he he calls it. But then yeah, other yeah, people yeah. other people sort of mean it in conjunction with the right to die. It can also sort of have relations to abortion. It can also sort of have a relation to like negative utilitarian red button solutions. So, yep. um, yeah, I mean, how, how would you define promortalism? Yeah. I think when you sort of vouch for unnatural death, right? Suicide killing as a means to reach your, in this case, philosophical goals. So when you say we must be extinct because we must get rid of suffering and therefore we must all die ASAP. So either we 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 force sterilizations on people or we just start randomly killing people. So this yeah this this killing extinction that Benatar talks about um that would be pro-mortalism. Okay, excellent. Yes. And that, so the that most is- the most efficient sort of path or the fastest way to extinction right. would undoubtedly be pro-mortalism. I see what you're saying. Okay, excellent. Yes, uh, yes, and killing extinction is not what we're going for. I mean, I, I have, I have, you know, if, if the red button were real, I would yeah. think that it would be the most ethical solution to press it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. obviously, what I'm invested in is the is the convincing game, is the argument game, yeah. um, and that's that's the way I I would like to see antinatalism achieve its goals. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask one thing? Have you ever had anyone on the show who was a pro mortis who was really preaching like, okay, we got to just get rid of us? as soon as possible oh yeah yeah definitely yeah. Mm-hmm. who was like the most radical you'd say um well you can tell me afterwards too if you don't want to say it on there <laughs> no i mean uh well so i i i the form of antinatalism that i that i first found was on youtube and it's called ethelism and so right. ethelism oh, yeah, is yeah. sort of yeah. an ex- sort of a, a a strict form of negative utilitarianism yeah it's not to say that it advocates going out and killing people that's but i mean but yes it does advocate for you know like again it's like it's like a form of negative utilitarianism so it advocates um i i don't think it has much difference honestly with with benatar's recommendation for phased extinction um and i I just i just sort of let me put it this way i i sort of am of the opinion that any future uh future um path that humans will take like if we, if we go down a transhumanist path i don't think i personally don't think that that's going to be one without harm i really don't i i i, I think i and so i don't i also if we go down an anti-natalist path i also don't think that that's going to be one without harm so i think that there is I, I just think it comes with whatever future we go down um but i but i but yes i mean that that is probably the most um aggressive form of antinatalism but i mean but the but but the pro-mortalism that most people that have come on the show um espouse has more to do with killing yourself right yeah than than you know extinction solutions so yeah yeah i mean it would be good for the environment if people killed themselves that that's 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 (laughs) grim but true i would say uh but yeah that's 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 fair enough but uh So I understand the, the the sort of the implication of pro-mortalism. It, yeah. it doesn't have to be true, of course. Like you can be a practic- non-practicing antinatalist and not preach extinction, but recognize that, yeah, of course, it would be the best solution. Right. Um, and, and But the funny thing about this also, this is what I, um, I mean, David Benatar is one of my 
my idols, right? And I don't mm-hmm. want to talk about him for two hours, mm-hmm. uh, but I do criticize him in my work, and I do think yeah. I can take a shot at your your idols every now and then, right? Yeah, of course. Keep yes. you on your toes. Yes. Um, so one of the things I disagree with is that when we are extinct, yeah. not only are we not going to suffer, but we're not going to have anything. We're not going to have toothaches. We're not going to have. We're not going to stub our toes on 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 a table. All these things are going to be gone. So it's a bit of a lazy solution, I guess. Like we're uh, not going to have computer viruses when we're gone. We're not going to have, I don't know, broken glasses or all, all these trivial things that are a part of life. And that's yeah. nobody really views as a significant harm to them. Um, like, yeah. oh, I spilled some coffee. Yeah, I'm never going to spill coffee if I'm dead, of course. So it's, just, yeah. it, it, it's a bit of a lazy solution. Uh, because in addition to suffering, all other forms of things that happen to us are also going to be gone. Yeah, so of course, yeah. it's not going to be suffering. We're not going to be around. So it's it's yeah. Uh, so. Well, no, I I, th- I think you I think that's an excellent point. I, I I've I've said many many times. I think that part of being an extinctionist is living your life in a with a sense of mourning. You know, because right. it, because being being an extinctionist doesn't necessarily mean that you hate every aspect of life, or that right. you think yeah, all yeah. experiences are bad, or that there's lots of wonderful things in life. I mean, I and I and I and I thoroughly enjoy them but i also happen to be an extinctionist um yeah. and so yeah so it's it, it is sort of um you you take with you psychologically a, a um an aspect of saying goodbye to everything you know when you're when you're espousing this this idea so um yeah i i, I don't know about it being a lazy solution necessarily but i do think that that aspect of mourning um actually in some respects does sort of i mean i can only speak from my own experiences but it does sort of allow you to savor your own life in a little right. bit because you know uh those little things the way light hits you know the ground or something i mean I, that's not going to nobody's going to be there to experience it um if we're all gone so but i'm here to experience it now and so that's there, there is a there is a yeah there is a pause that it allows yeah. you that i think not mm-hmm. being extinctionist maybe doesn't so there's there's different ways of looking at that for sure um I'd love to read your conclusion to this paper, if you don't mind. Is that, yeah, is that okay? Yeah, sure, of course. Go All on. right. Yeah. In spite of its aims, antinatalism occupies a corner in the shadow of the value crisis that emerge in the wake of the death of God. As such, it operates in the same value vacuum that has animated intellectuals for the past 150 years or so. Antinatalism cannot, however, impose its claims as if we're not thus confined, as but one of the more voracious mourners in the funeral procession of God. In other words, antinatalism launches claims against a foe vulnerable only to meta-claims. These mere claims, consequently, only ricochet right back into its face. The radicalism of this modern phenomenon can only pick up as much momentum as a muscle car on a racetrack, and in the end, it will not get anywhere real. Viewed as such, its radicalism becomes the taunt of trolls, measured in bites or decibels, but never measured for its actual success. For whatever we do with the chapels of old, no matter how we decide to use them in the 21st century, it is evident that the eyes of God nictitate behind the stained glass of human efflorescence. So, Robert, why so pessimistic? You don't think antinatalism will succeed? I'm just joking. Um, but <laughs> but, uh, but I'm, 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 again, I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about that, the radicalism coming back into its face. Um, but I, I, I want to hear more about how far you believe antinatalism could go, why you think it'll it'll fail. I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I'm, I'm interested in hearing more thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah. Well, so uh, when you tie antinatalism to extinction, first and foremost, you know that this is never going to happen because too many people are not going to want extinction for, for our species. 
Um, so I think you can only say anti-natalism works when you have a local sort of very specific goal. Suppose you want to bring down the, the, the average temperature by 0 0.5 degrees, right? And then you make an agreement with everybody in the world, say, okay, nobody's going to have kids the coming 10 years. Um, that's, of course, going to lead to all sort, sorts of long-term societal civilizational problems. But um, if you just have, have like, like a 10-year pause, I'm sure we can fix many things in the meantime. We can reorganize our, you know, our resources and, and, and do all sorts of great things. Uh, but that, for me, is not real antinatalism. Antinatalism is only real when it's conclusive and when it aspires to this extinction. Um, and that's necessarily going to fail. So coming back also to your, your, your question about tragedy, I think that's pretty tragic. Like we have a very clear-cut solution that's 100% going to work, but it's never going to be possible to actually implement this in society. And that's, I think, where society and philosophy clash. And I think in that sort of meeting, uh, I am most interested in. Yes, yeah, that's a great interest to me as well. So how, how in your opinion, how far can antinatalism go? Like, what, what will be the stopping point? I don't know. I, I think it, it, it it's already clashing quite significantly with transhumanism, which I view in many respects as its, I mean, its counterpart, uh, where transhumanism is, I don't know, fairly pessimistic. Transhu oh, wait, antinatalism is fairly pessimistic, and then transhumanism wants to keep on going at any cost. So I think that's definitely more hopeful. Um, I'm not sure where antinatism can take us, to be honest. It could only lead to a bunch of people committing themselves to non-reproduction, non-procreation, uh, but it's never going to, to, to really reach its goals. Unless you sort of water down the content, the message of antinatism, and you acknowledge that, yes, we can have various forms of antinatism. We don't all have to be radical and, and reach for extinction. But we can also just decide on an individual level that we're not going to have kids and not reproduce. Um, yeah, when you think that those sort of different degrees of antinatism can coexist, then antinatism can be successful. Uh, yeah, it could reach the lives of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. Um, but other than this, I don't think it's going to really reach its end, of course. So I think it's very interesting that the place that it occupies now that fascinates me, not its efficiency, I would say. So the fact that we have antinatalism is impressive, not the fact that it's very efficient or it's going to persuade everybody. I think it's a very I, powerful idea. Forgive me, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, no, no, that's all, so good. I, listen, as much as I want to see antinatalism succeed, and maybe I am a bit more hopeful for its prospects than, than you are, I mean... It, I can't deny that even now it doesn't seem to be having any any impact on birth rates. I mean, antinatalism no. is not is not not at a point if no. it ever will be where it's having no. those 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 discernible um those that's kind of discernible impact. Um, and I and I don't know what it would take to get it to that point. Um, but yeah, I thank you for your thoughts on that. I really appreciate that very much. So thank you so much, Robert. Now moving on to your second paper. Um, I'd love to read the abstract. The title is Wailing from the Heights of Vailty, a strong case for antinatalism in these trying times. This was written in 2021. Abstract. The 21st century is teeming with larger than life threats to our larger than life existence. Famine, war, natural disasters, and climate change, viruses, incurable diseases, etc. At stake is the future of the human species as a whole, but it is not just external threats that herald in the prospective end of humanity. We also face the general exhaustion of many of our earlier and more comfortable modes of philosophy. This is arguably a much graver threat. 
It is this gloomy atmosphere that the philosophy of antinatalism taps into. Antinatalism is the philosophical view according to which human reproduction should be brought to a halt for any of a variety of reasons. It will be argued here, however, that we can only come to the antinatalist conclusion when we affirm that humankind somehow represents a very persistent anomaly in the universe at large. Otherwise, we could simply resort to much less radical steps than the ones advocated by antinatalism. Based on this, an important distinction will be made between the reactionary or activist antinatalism and its more philosophical so-called originary counterpart. Ultimately, against recent attempts that push for a moderate embrace of antinatalism, the present work makes a strong case for it. It is argued that this is warranted by the very writings most usually associated with this radical philosophical position. Um, excellent. So uh, one more quote, and then it, we'll, we'll, that I, yeah. I, I promise. No, of um, course. It will, I, I mean, I want to say first off, I mean, I, I would, this paper is of particular interest to me because I do identify as an antinatalist activist. And so some of the distinctions that you make um, are really quite fascinating. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about them. Um, it will be argued here that these claims can only be warranted by the underlying thought that humankind should never have come into existence in the first place. We can only come to the antinatalist conclusion when we conf- when we affirm that humankind somehow represents a very persistent uh, anomaly in the universe at large. So some antinatalists might say that. I don't necessarily not say that. Um, I think we are a mistake of aberrant you know, chemistry. Um, but I would argue that that's a, a bit of a narrow view of antinatalism, in my opinion, because as I believe you know, um, but that I, I don't necessarily see addressed in a lot of your papers is that a great deal of antinatalism is not simply anthropocentric, it's sentiocentric. So it's not simply the idea that human life is a mistake. Uh, it's sentience and life more broadly. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, even even David Benatar, you know, does, it's, I mean, it's the, 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 the jury is a little bit still out whether he would consider himself a sentiocentric antinatalist, but he does right. mention, you know, that animal life is particularly is concluded in his assessment so yeah this is what i find fascinating about about benatar because at, at certain points he definitely hints at some sort of animal antinatalism and a lot of stuff has been written about this these days as well it's a fascinating problem for benatar key to his project is that we as human beings are able to sort of choose this this solution uh, of extinction now, animals cannot do this so animal antinatalism on his own terms would be impossible because we need consent, right? He's he's clearly against killing extinction. He's in favor of dying extinction, phased extinction. We need to sort of get used to the idea that reproduction is horrible, too many moral problems associated with it. We're going to keep perpetuating or enlarging this circle of suffering around us. Um, animals cannot make these decisions, so they can never consent to their own extinction, unless you believe in like this this lemming mythology. These creatures that would leap from the from a cliff or something. Most animals are not able to, 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 to come up with these things. So I think on his own terms, uh, yeah, animal antinatalism cannot exist. So it, it, for me, yeah, I'm a non-practicing philosophical anthropocentric antinatalist, I would say. Fair enough, fair enough. And I, I, I am uh, most definitely a sentiocentric antinatalist. I mean, incidentally, this is why ethelism started, because it didn't, yep. the feeling was that, Benetarianism and the way the contemporary antinatalism was going did not account enough for the animals. So I'm not a killing extinctionist based on for human life, but I do think that, especially considering our own end, 
we have a responsibility to the animals to intervene. And that's, that's just my belief. Obviously it's <laughs> yeah. not everybody shares it, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. So, I mean, you agree with this distinction between dying extinction and, and killing extinction, but do you, do you think that animals could ever opt for a dying extinction or it could no. only be killing? Is that what no. you said? Or Yes. I, I, I okay. don't, I, I, I think that we, that we would have to decide for them. That is yeah. awful and paternalistic right. as it is some yeah, sort yeah. of some sort of decision should be made in their place Would, wouldn't that be um what do they call it speciesism i don't believe so i mean i i, I i'm sure that it i'm sure that it is called speciesism but i mean <laughs> right. i i cannot justify leaving them behind i mean that is that yeah. is the distinction between I'm, I'm sure you're also familiar with vehement voluntary human extinction movement mm -hmm. yep, they're sort yep, of yep. an older form of, of antinatalist activism um, but I mean, th their recommendation is that we go extinct and they, you know, human life or animal life or other life will be sort of marvelous without us. Mm -hmm. And I, I I don't believe that that's right. So you don't think animals can flourish in the absence of humans at all? Or... I think they will, they will replicate to a degree that we've, <laughs> that has not existed Right. since we were around they will kill and eat each other infinitum and then they will perish yep. in natural extinction and i think that right. human beings are the one creature on earth that could somehow i don't pretend to think that we have the solution now i think it would take a tremendous i think it would take a tremendous effort for humans to engineer a solution for the animals uh in some sort of uh ethical way but yeah i mean I don't I don't believe that nature is is suffering free. I think it's filled with suffering that shouldn't mm -hmm. shouldn't be allowed to exist past us if we can do right. something. Right. No, that's, that's 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 a fair point. I uh, I, I get that. I, I I disagree, but it it, it is a fair point. I must yeah. give you this. Yeah. More than fair, more than fair. Um so Robert, you most interesting to me you speak quite a bit about the subject of anti-endless activism. Another quote. I apologize. Um while a quick internet search will yield a plethora of news articles and other resulting results uh dealing with antinatalism, we need uh to make an important distinction between so-called reactionary or activist antinatalism and its more philosophical counterpart. The former is becoming increasingly visible and audible as a stopgap solution to some of the biggest problems of our age. With a total disregard for its philosophical implications, many activists that claim to subscribe to antinatalism turn to social media to pledge their allegiance to it. Um, and again, sorry, one more long quote and then we'll, we're off to the races. This brings us to the heart of the activist uh, activism philosophy or reactionary origina originary divide hinted at above. While there are a few instances of true philosophical antinatalism, as we will see below, we are witnessing an explosive growth in online activist antinatalism that is mostly concerned with finding stopgap solutions to today's most pressing problems. This type of antinatalism can be called reactionary uh, in that is simply response to current affairs and from there draws a conclusion regarding childbirth and maintains that life has become unbearable, rife with suffering, especially in the 21st century, and that childbirth is, for the moment, at least not permissible or desirable. When large-scale problems like climate change and overpopulation are solved, we may as well start the lines of reproduction again. This type of antinatalist activism is, as of yet, mostly founded in uh, constellations of loosely associated individuals on the internet. While their understanding of the philosophical sides of things may be lacking, their rise nonetheless indicates that traditional values concerning reproduction and childbirth 
are being openly criticized and even rejected. While this is happening mostly in online circles, it pays the way for deepening of antinatalist philosophy as well. Um, you speak a lot about how the differences in the world of antinatalist activism and antinatalist philosophy are. You speak a lot about those differences. And I actually don't disagree with you particularly there. I think antinatalism as a movement attracts people for all kinds of reasons. And often none of those reasons have anything to do with philosophy. Um, in, two, in, two, in 2017, there was a researcher named Natalia, Natalia Santi, who, not a real name, I don't think, who conducted a survey on antinatalists within various online communities during that time, particularly on Reddit and Facebook. And one of the questions in the survey asked ANs how many books on antinatalism they had read. And a shocking 65.1% of all antinatalists surveyed had never read a book on antinatalism. Right. Um, yeah. So I agree. There's a huge issue there. Uh, and by the way, I like that you referenced uh, George Rosaletos' uh, paper yeah, to strengthen yeah. this point. George has been a guest on the show. He's, he's great. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't think that you're mistaken in diagnosing some of an the antinatalism that you see on places like Reddit as reactionary or less authentic to philosophical antinatalism. Um, I, I'd love to hear just more about that. But my only contention is I, I think that few would seriously call a lot of what you're seeing in those places as antinatalist activism. In fact, I, I think a lot of those people would reject the term anti calling that antinatalist activism. In fact, activism is kind of a dirty word. <laughs> in sure. Yeah, spaces. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's which I find it fascinating. was all intentional. <laughs> yeah. I know. There you go. Okay. Uh, and and I just I also just I I'm curious as to fam your familiarity with with quote unquote real antinatalist activist groups such as Child Free India, Antinatalism Japan, Antinatalism International, Stop Having Kids. Uh, and most recently, antinatalist activism. What do you think about these more focused antinatalist initiatives? Well, I can't speak on all of these groups that you mentioned, but I think in general, these movements are not really antinatalist. I think when you localize, when you when you when you argue that reproduction should be stopped for say ten years, twenty years, fifty years, hundred years in certain locations at certain times, whatever, I don't think that that's real antinatalism. Likewise, suppose I. I love to party. Uh, I want to party every day of the week. I want to drink. I want to get drunk. I don't want to have kids. And would I then be an anti-natist if I say, no, I, I prefer to party and drink? I don't, of course, but suppose I would be like that. I don't want to have kids ever because I just want to party. Would I be an anti-natist? I would say no. But technically, if you look at the, 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 the very meaning of the word anti-natism, yeah, you're against birth. You don't want to reproduce for any of a variety of reasons. So you would technically be an antinatalist according to many people that call themselves antinatalists. Likewise, if I have some sort of terrible accident this afternoon, um, I'm not physically able to reproduce anymore, would I be an antinatalist? Well, technically, yes, uh, but essentially, no, I would say. So it, it, it really depends on this on these technical aspects. And so in this article, I want to make things clear and, and give the separation between people that really vouch for extinction and people that just are inspired by this idea that we don't have to just blindly reproduce. We can make our own choices. We have reproductive freedom. Um, and therefore, they just think it's an attractive idea that could definitely be of benefit to us. Uh, but so, yeah, I do think there's a clear distinction. I don't think everybody is equally antinatalist who, who claims to be antinatalist. Well, I definitely agree with you there. I mean, I, look, I keep my I, I run the 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 
widest tent in the antenatal circus. Like I like to keep the, the definition wide, be- partially yeah. because I, I, I think it's part of the way forward. Like if, if this idea has any hope, then you kind of have to embrace different forms of anti-procreation because it's a very rare sentiment. Like, you know, it's just, it's, it's, and it's, and it's an oppressed one, you know, in many parts of the world. And so, um, so I, I, I do it for those reasons. Um, But, but of course I agree with you that, you know, it's only extinctionist antinatalism that's real antinatalism. I would, I would definitely agree with you, but I think that you do find that in some of these more sort of proto NGOs. I mean, you know, child-free India, uh, for instance, I mean, they sort of run the gamut of all forms of antinatalism. Some of it's more, again, on the child-free spectrum, but then some of it's more on the extinctionist side of things. Uh, antinatalism International, though it exists in sort of uh, diminished form at the minute, is 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 a, an organization that I put together with a number of friends of mine. It's quite extinctionist. So I think that that is in, it, that's in there. And I just, I just think that it's, it might be valuable to make a bit of a distinction between groups like that and, you know, people who hate disabled babies on Reddit. You know what I mean? Like that's not, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's not antinatalist activism. No, I mean, no, no. There's, there's a lot of trolls on Reddit, of course. A lot. Yeah. A lot of people just think it's cool to be antinatalist now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I just, for many people who are self-professed antinatalists, the people that I would call activistic antinatalists, they're just caught up in this wave of childlessness that's mostly sweeping wealthy places, right? So it's not just the West, it's also Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, China in its entirety almost, um, mm-hmm. cities like Mumbai in India, people are not reproducing as much as they used to. And mm-hmm. antinatalism cleverly ties into this sort of phenomenon that we have, this association between wealth, education, and sort of uh, reproduction. So that many people are inspired by this and they sort of think it's cool. Like, yeah, there's some sense to it. And then they sort of use this anti-natalist philosophy to, uh, to identify themselves. Um, so of course I'm not speaking about all these organizations, but that's the, that's the idea that I have with many self-professed anti-natalists online on Reddit, on Facebook, possibly on Instagram, Snapchat. I don't, I can't keep up with it anymore, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, many people just, there is a phenomenon in society now that, People just don't have kids for a variety of reasons. And only maybe 0.5% of the people who would call themselves antinatalists, I estimate, would actually be like hardcore extinctionist antinatalists. Right. And the rest just don't want to have kids, right? So it's, uh, yeah. And it's always a question of, of like orthodoxy, right? Some people, if you look at religion, there's always going to be some hardliners who say, no, you have to really follow scripture. Um, and there's going to be people who say, well, I just like to go to church once every month. Or I just like to have coffee with the ladies from church after the service. Um, yeah, you can't really say that they're not religious. They're not, you know, obedient to scripture. But it's it's just it's a dip, bit of a different ballgame. So I guess in this debate, I would be a bit of a hardliner, perhaps, in the sense that I only recognize, like, the the beliefs of this, like, 0.5% of antinatists to be legit. Um, but, yeah, I think that it's not necessarily a bad thing when it comes to pretty extreme positions like extinction that we sort of close the gate for many uh, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 now, just, just to clarify, like the, the the other side of it, the people that, you know, are are not full extinctionist antinatalists, you, your idea is perhaps this is coming out of like affluence, like that's, that's part of what's inspiring them to sort of be more on the child-free spectrum. 
Yeah, yeah, that, uh, possibly, okay. yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's like I'm, I'm not bashing these people. I'm not saying that they're, no, they're no, no, inauthentic no. or illegitimate. Uh, I'm just saying, like, yeah, we need to establish different boundaries. There's certain anti-natives that are philosophical, certain ones that are not. Both are, of course, against birth, and therefore they are anti-natalist technically. But there's 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 probably more than fifty shades of anti-natalist. Uh, oh yeah, in the for, sure. Today. for sure, for so. sure, for sure. I couldn't disagree with you there. Um, cool. But there, there's at least you know some reasons I think uh, why these divides are happening. I think there's really several factors at play here. One, you know. It, Again, we talked a little bit about this already. It's the incredible controversial nature of being open about pro-extinction. I mean, I think that does keep a lot of antinatalists silent. Uh, they are afraid. And I mean, you know, we have a lot of antinatalists in all kinds of really dangerous situations. I mean, um, Lawrence Anton, a, a fellow antinatalist buddy of mine, I mean, he just interviewed uh, an antinatalist in, I think, where was it? Um, Algeria or something like that. I mean, you know, okay. really like, you know, a dangerous situation. I mean, a situation where they could mm -hmm. be killed, you know, yep. if, if if ideas like this came out, um, especially since, you know, a lot of antinatalism is associated with atheism. So, um, mm -hmm. so yeah, so there's, there's all this, but there's also, I mean, there's no, um, the other reason is that I think, you know, on the philosoph on the, on the philosopher side of the equation, there haven't really been all that many who have been willing to be public figures. You know, of the three that created the core philanthropic arguments, David Benatar never shows his face. Uh, and while I don't for a second question, you know, that he's uh, why he does that. I mean, it does. I think it does help to reinforce this sense of fear about philosophical antinatalism and being public about it. And then there's Shauna Schifrin, the inventor of the consent argument. You know, she also is, is pretty anonymous. Uh, and I don't even know, identifies as an antinatalist philosopher, uh, but she doesn't show her face. Then there's, um, the only one that does is Matsu Hairi. He invented the, the risk argument. Um, he does show his face, but, but despite that fact, he's, um, he, he's not, he, I mean, he, as a contributor to antinatalism, most antinatalists didn't really know about him until about a year ago, uh, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, so, sorry. So there's no leadership. There's no infrastructure. There's been very little um, collaboration up until fairly recently between the philosophers and the activists. So I, th I think that that's one reason why there is this divide. And I just I'm curious what you think about that. So first of all, I'd like to say that uh, one of the most interesting things I've ever heard about antinatism, I was talking about this recently with somebody, and he claimed that he had proof that David Benatar does not exist. <laughs> so it's just, I don't know what, what exactly he thinks, but there's either a group of people who just push forward this David Benatar image or something, this sort of straw figure, or he claims that there's some sort of co cooperation, cooperation behind this. I don't know, but he, he just claims that Benatar does not exist. I, yeah, I understand why he thinks this. I like to believe that he does exist, but it is weird how he doesn't show himself. And there is a clear lack of leadership in his movement. I don't see it as a bad thing. I, the, only when you're interested in sort of the, the, the local temporary aspect uh, or the potential of antinatalism, uh, yeah, then leadership would be good. But I think, it, it, yeah, I don't, I don't see why lack of leadership in, in, at least on the philosophical side of things, why there would have to be a problem. Um, so when you clearly want to inspire a community to not have kids for, say, 50 years, yeah, then leadership would uh, would be necessary. But when you just think about ideas, it, it, it you know, around extinction, 
destroying humankind, basically. I don't think there has to be clear leadership. So can I ask you why you think it's a bad thing that there's no face of the movement? Well, I think because there is a tremendous amount of good that this idea can do. I mean, there's a yeah, I mean, there's a long way to go before we got to really worry about extinction happening. I mean, in the meantime, there's a lot of suffering in the world. There's a lot of people being produced for there's a, there's a lot of need being produced for no need. Um, and you know, it's 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 antinatalism is essentially you know a hundred years or more behind something like the vegan movement. And I think it could be just the same. I think it could, and there's a huge relationship between the vegan movement and the antinatalist movement. And there's a clear scaling up of what this at the activist side of the movement could be. And I think that one thing that it needs is people that are willing to be faces of the movement um, so that it can alleviate some of the fear involved. Um, and yeah, I think, I think, I think we could, we have antinatalism does have the possibility of being a real activist movement in the world i mean again I, th I think i think we can do a lot to prevent birth um and i think that's something that is a a very i think it's a very good initiative um and i think it's something that's crying out to be developed further and i think that having public more public facing antinatalist philosophers is one thing that could help that i think having more collaboration between antinatalist philosophers and antinatalist activists can solidify what this thing is in the world in a more pronounced way um yeah I, I think i think there's a lot of there's a lot of real positive things that antinatalism can bring to the world but it can't do that if it doesn't have that infrastructure right so do you for instance think that suppose um suppose there's an ngo of, that, that operates in like a developing country and that 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 sort of hands out free anti-conception to people there right so they they, they make a million condoms every month and they just ship them out to this country and just spread them out. And then the reproduction numbers will go down inevitably. Would you say that that's an anti-natist organization's NGO? Uh, no, I mean, I think, I think it, I think that's part of what an antinatalist NGO could do. I think part of what an antinatalist NGO also needs to do is make arguments towards, you know, end goals like extinction and things like that. But I think it's also, um, I think that there are relationships that can be built between uh, an anti antinatalist organizations. And I, I think that there's things like the right to die, things like veganism. I think antinatalism is a bit of a missing piece to those discussions. And I think that there's all kinds of sort of um, uh, collaborations and um, inroads that can be made uh, between these different ideas. Um, so yes, I mean, again, I th I think I think that an antinatalist organization can directly influence reproduction, you know, in terms of like handing out contraception, like you're saying. I don't think it ends there. I mean, I think that, and again, I think these are part of what you're saying is, you know, things that need to be developed. I mean, how what does antinatalist activism that is effective really look like in the world? I mean, an organization like Stop Having Kids, which is just about to become a full NGO, I think, if I'm not mistaken, right. you know, th th their mode of activism right now has been a lot of street activism. So they're out there holding signs. They have like billboards and stuff. I mean, that's one form of engaging with the public with antinatalist ideas. But I think that there's there's more things that we could be out there doing. Right, right. So, so you do think that every individual, every sort of world for you, every organization, NGO, 
that sort of combats this almost holy taboo that there is on questioning reproduction, you think that would all justifiably be referred to as antinatalist? No, no, I don't. I no. don't. I, I not necessarily. I mean, I think right. that um, you know, a a an, an organization like um, Project Prevention, okay, that right. uh, you know does uh, abortions and contraceptions, yep. contraception stuff to drug addicts. I would not call that an antinatalist organization. They might be doing things that. Uh, well, first of all, there's no conscious. Antinatalist, the consciousness of antinatalism is not out there yet. So yeah, if yeah. it if it were to be, it's possible that an organization like that could find an antinatalist identity. But I wouldn't say that that those types of organizations are antinatalist. But I think that part of what their something an organization like that is doing is part of what a more consciously active antinatalist organization would do. You know. So, so you also, so you, yeah, you clearly seem to agree that there's some sort of elusive, abstract sense of antinatalism, like the true antinatalism, and a more practical, hands-down sort of manifestation of this, or like a like a, a group that puts this into practice. Say, yeah, and I don't think that they have to be separate. I mean, I think that that's right, there, okay. there is there's a there's a yeah. unity between what you're identifying as these disparate forms that is just it's that it, it's basically what you're identifying as something very young. That is, in, you know, antinatalism is basically in its infancy as a form of activism and as a form of philosophy, too. I mean, it's, you know, sure. it's, it's only since 2006 that it's yeah. developed human, human, tremendously since then. But I mean, at the minute, it, as, as, a, as a whole, it doesn't really know whether it wants to be just a, you know, a depressed and angry child or whether it's going to grow up into something more. And again, the, the specter of, of the extinction side is a long way the hell away you know, what does, what does that middle ground look like? I think it, it does, it can incorporate all of these um, uh, things like you're bringing up, like, yes, like pass, passing out contraception and those kinds of things. But obviously I think it's something to be further developed. And I think it can, again, be a very positive force in the world. The main problem that any self-professed antinatalist will run into is the great bias against their newfound conviction. Life is simply geared towards its own perpetuation, not its cessation. People are more or less programmed to reproduce. Um, so obviously, I agree with you. <laughs> there are tons of pushback to be found, but I don't. I don't really necessarily agree with the idea that we are programmed to reproduce. I mean, re reproducing creatures are propelled by a desire to have sex. Um, and I would agree that procreation is, uh, my idea is that procreation is mostly a, cult, a cultural phenomenon, a very strong one. Granted, it's, it's but not the driving power of, of, of programming. What would you say to that idea? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think we're programmed. Uh, and of course, when I say programmed, uh, people easily think that we're programmed by somebody to, to, to reproduce. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, but I, I, I do think we're just geared towards reproducing. Like, yeah, there is this cultural aspect where reproduction or the lack of reproduction even nowadays is, is, is sort of valued a lot. But uh, I don't think it's purely cultural because why do mice reproduce? There's no, unless you think that there's like a, like a, a, a mouse, I don't know, patriarchy or something. <laughs> I think we, we just reproduce like all other animals. Well, I, I well, no, I, I certainly don't think there's a mouse patriarchy. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that the, you know, animals are more natural creatures than we are in the sense that they have mm -hmm. they they haven't developed culture in the way that we do. And so, I mean, I, I just think that the the um, 
that the the same kind of programming has been a bit severed because we have developed culture and so it's it's more of a I think it's more propelled by a sexual drive than yeah I mean I, I, mean, I animals, guess what you're saying yeah yeah I mean it's certainly animals I mean they're they don't have a choice in the matter I mean they're, they're, right. they're yeah so I guess that's so I, I I understand what you're saying like there is definitely a clear cultural component here because we've left. The, the the innocence of the animal kingdom a long time ago. I mean, we yeah. build weapons of mass destruction, skyscrapers, uh, proton accelerators or neutron accelerators, whatever. So we've left that realm behind us quite a long time ago. At the same time, there's still this, this sort of, I don't know, basic animal DNA in us that we can never get rid of. Um, so maybe I have a very simplistic view of what humans are. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But I, I, I definitely understand that, yeah, there is this cultural component too. But uh, I don't think reproduction is completely artificial for us. I don't think it's, you know, there's no natural part of us and we're complete cultural creatures. We're completely conditioned by society and nothing else. I do think there's there's a big sort of natural element to us as well. For sure. I I guess what I guess what I would say is I think that the the natural part that comes through here is the sexual drive that it's sort of the, you know, it's, it's, it's the tool that the DNA uses to, you know, compel us to, to do yep. to do its yep. bidding yep. but yeah no thank you for your thoughts on that so i mean before we go to the to the next paper i i which I'm, i can't wait to get into um you know i'm just I'm curious what kind of reactions these first two papers have, have received i mean have have you noticed much discussion of them amongst antinatalists what's been sort of the response you know in in your academic circles um you know, especially in insofar as what the things that you say about antinatalist activism. I mean, I'm I just really am curious what what reactions you perceive to all that. Right. So I wish I could tell you that uh, I know people just love my work, but the sad reality is people don't really care. So I I, I have not. I am sorry to hear that. Responses to this. I'm still working on this. Maybe someday. Uh, so far, the reaction has not been that um, let's say explosive. And of course, secretly, we're not willing to admit it, but anyone who's like active in, acad- in, in the academic world, who's a philosopher, who's publishing, would like to have an explosive response to their work. But of course, I, I understand that's not always happening. And it's certainly not always happening right away. So I, 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 I'm, I'm proud of my work. Um, uh, that's the most important thing for me. So... 100%. Well, I, I, I hope the reactions to your work increase, certainly. If you don't mind me asking, and again, like if this is area that is not good for us to get into just we can cut this out but yeah i'm always curious sort of what it's like to attempt to publish work on this subject i mean is it is it do you have you had any sort of difficulty like getting people to accept that uh this is this is a topic of discussion i mean have you have you had much pushback to it's really quite impressive i mean you know you've you really published quite a lot on this subject as i mentioned earlier in this interview i mean six papers on the subject of antinatalism is a really you know, great, great, uh, great offering to, to the idea. Right, yeah. Um, but I mean, is, is it, is it difficult to publish on the subject of antinatalism? To well, what what I know? find interestingly enough, and you must experience this the same way. Um, you're working on antinatalism for a long time. Like it really consumes you. So you think that it's a very big thing in the world and everybody's talking about it, but that's not the case. Like I'm, I've been working on this so long. I just assume that everybody knows about it, but most often, uh, what happens most often when I try to publish on this or try to give a talk on this at a conference, people don't know it's a thing. They're like, multiple people have asked me if I'm the one who came up with this term antinatalism. And I'm like, no, it just, it, it, it's been around. I'm just talking about this, but people just, they're confused. It's like, what the hell is this stuff? 
And that's uh, that's not a, what I was expecting, but it's I, I guess it's changing slow. Like anti-natism is becoming better well-known or more well-known than it used to be. But yeah, the initial response was pretty cold, I, I, I would say. That's fascinating. Yes. I, I also have received that same reaction. Like, okay. so you came yeah. up with this. Like, this is, this is yeah, your idea. Right. It's like, no, no, I no. wish. I wish. I wish. Exactly. Yeah. I wish. Yeah. Um, but have, have, but no, thank you for your insight into that. I find that absolutely fascinating. I mean, have, has, have, has, I mean, have you had much? It's, so the reaction has been mostly cold, but I mean, not yeah. negative, would you say? No, I don't think so. And that's probably because, like I said, like I'm a non practicing anti native. So yeah. people don't, I think when you're, really like like vouching for like hey you cannot reproduce you cannot reproduce it's too bad i think people will give you a bit of a negative response to that in my case i've, I've not experienced any any negative side effects of, of writing about these things at all um i mean maybe people are like really angry at me for writing the things i did but I, i've not heard about it so okay interesting yeah that's, that's i hope you can keep it this way as well but yeah like i said i think if you have a more activist approach to this like you're you also open the door to to a lot of criticism oh yeah then it sure. becomes sort of a sentimental emotional thing the way you just work with this philosophically it, it, yeah people don't really care yeah no that, that thank you for your insight into that i mean i my my graduate thesis was all about antinatalism and, cool. and obviously yeah. i took it from a more activist angle uh and a yep. weird art angle at taboo okay. um and, uh, i only actually ever had one really angry response which is interesting right it's, it's like mm. I, I i think because it's such a rare idea yeah you know people generally they're kind of like there's a certain level of fascination people you know kind of i wonder if your experience has been sort of the same on that front yeah yeah i, I guess people secretly are fascinated by stuff that's dark you know, they secretly like dark art and dark movies, dark music, dark books. Um, I, I don't know where this fascination comes from, but maybe it reminds us of something of our childhood or something. <laughs> so there is this sort of grim fascination with topics like extinction and, and that kind of thing. But uh, can I ask you, uh, who who was the uh, the negative response by? Like, who, who, who was that person who responded angrily to your work? I truthfully don't remember their name. It was a... Right. a like a first year uh my my school the school of the art institute of chicago that like on their first yeah. year program it was one of the it was yeah. one of those professors I, I i've only met him once and um it was sort of and so i made a movie called the ethelist and it was like an early edit very early edit of some material from that and um i mean he just and it was really benign material i have to say it was not there was really nothing in there that was at all pro mortalist or anything but yeah. he just went nuts i mean he 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 was he just started making accusations like you know that you're gonna poison the drinking water and all this stuff and then wouldn't yeah, stay yeah. in the room like you know <laughs> it was like you know like just wa pacing like a like a mad tiger like in front of the door for yeah, yeah. the entire length of the critique so it was really fat i mean it's terrible you know just yeah. you, you never want that in a you know end of the year review kind of situation but uh it was fascinating <laughs> Yeah. No, I mean, I guess when it's like your graduate thesis or graduate work, then you don't want this response. But I would love to have some response like that just to really <laughs> just wind people up. Makes it probably make me feel like Socrates a little bit. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if you experienced it like that as well. But it, it was terrible at the time. I'm kind of proud of it now. I mean, look, it's yeah. way better than people being bored, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but that, that's, that's interesting to hear. Uh, I'm sure like, David Benatar obviously gets a lot of like negative responses, but uh, yeah, yeah I, 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 
I've yet to receive them. Yeah, well, I'm glad. I'm glad for that. I'm glad that you haven't had that experience. Um, so yeah, so I'd love to now move on to uh, your third paper, a sonogram on the dark side of the Tao, the possibility yep. of antinatalism and Taoism. Um, truly, uh, Robert, one of the most, I really, not, with, not without, I can say this without a shred of insincerity, one of the most unique papers on the subject of antinatalism I have ever read. Uh, I do not think any other paper has really tackled, like, the convergence between these two ideas at all. So a true congratulations to you on that. I think it really is a stunning, a stunning piece. Yes, absolutely. So I, I, I truthfully did not have not really written many questions about this paper only because I, I really was just hoping you could explain your ideas. I just love to hear you talk about that. I'm going to, I'm so long as it's all right with you, I am going to read the abstract, but then yeah, just please just uh, say whatever you wish to about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Of course. Go for it. Wonderful. Okay. Abstract. In the present work, I study Taoist philosophy in conjunction with the radical new philosophy of antinatalism, spearheaded by South African philosopher David Benatar. Although I am not claiming equivalence between the two, a meaningful communication emerges between the classical Chinese sources used here and the modern doctrine of antinatalism. I argue that both visions partake in a radical critique of consciousness, according to which faculty of the human mind is far from what it is often held to be. In fact, it is perceived as a destructive and disruptive element of and in existence. Moreover, both offer a praxis of return that seeks to undo this disruption. In the case of Taoism, consciousness pushes humans ever farther away from the Tao. It is imperative to return from this exile and to return to the Tao. This can, radically, only be achieved by the return from ordinary conscious existence. This is the prerogative of sagehood. It will be shown that the trajectory of sagehood shares important parameters with the antinatalist quest to signify, and perhaps conclusively, challenge human hubris in the cosmos at large, and to reinstate cosmic humility. So, absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, I'd love, just love to hear anything you'd wish to say about this. So, yeah, first of all, thank you for your uh, kind words about this paper. What I really tried to accomplish in this paper is to uh, make a case for this disconnection between antinatalism and reproduction. And I did this using, you know, some some seminal text from the Taoist corpus. Uh, so it's not really a, a comparative philosophical work where I say, look, we have this in Taoism, we have this in antinatalism, and they're the same. What I think is most important about both of these views is that they share this um, sort of not so congratulatory view on human existence, right? So this is really what they what they do have in common in both Taoism and antinatalism. We see that human existence is a bit of an obstacle. The world works just fine without us. Um, most of our achievements can be seen as incredibly hubristic um, and greatly damaging to the world around us. So the most important thing is not that both Taoism and antinatalism somehow share this this sort of this 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 project of, of stopping reproduction forever. That only comes into play later on. But they do share this grim diagnosis that human life is first of all suffering. And it would be better if we, we we didn't exist. So this very abstract idea that we're some sort of mistake, it would have been better if we 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 never came into existence. That is something you see in both of these traditions, and that's what I really zoomed in on uh, when I tried to make this case. That it's not all about reproduction. It's really about this sort of grim view, and then what comes around the corner next is probably the the, the emphasis on extinction that we have to sort of rectify the mistakes that we've inadvertently made by existing, getting rid of us, in other, uh, in other words, sort of alleviating this pressure that we, we exert on the, on the world around us. 
Um, yeah, that, 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 that's, that for me is what anti-natalism is all about. And one possible way of achieving this is by gently persuading people not to have kids. Uh, now, that's not something you, you, you will find in Taoism. But the other parts, you know, where humankind is not really viewed as a as, as a great asset in the world, that's something that, yeah, you also find in antinatism, of course. So I hope that makes sense when I, uh, um, you know, when I talk about it like this. But uh, yeah, I really try to continue to work my first two papers and 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 really continue this process of identifying what antinatalism is about. Um, yeah, sort of contribute to the to the ongoing process of of, of, of defining antinatalism by disconnecting antinatalism from the sort of the, 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 the emphasis on, on reproduction on childbirth. Right, okay, Re disconnecting it from the or focus on childbirth, more focusing it on, a, 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 on extinction, essentially, if I'm yeah, correct. Or, or like on pessimism, maybe we can, right. we can call it pessimism. Um, yeah, so that, that to me is more important than just not having kids. Right. Okay. And that and that sort of that Taoism sort of recommends sort of the same sort of solution, but not 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 in terms of reproduction. Yeah. So what Taoism recommends and 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 Taoist texts are clear that this is not easy. Like it's not within reach. Like it's not it's not necessarily going to happen to all of us anytime soon. Uh, but they 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 do clearly preach or they 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 advise us to sort of rectify the mistakes that that that, that we've made as a species and sort of undo. The unnecessary pressures of our existence on the world around us. Um, Antinatism is way more practical, it's way more, more contemporary, of course. So they make this claim that, hey, we can actually achieve this by not reproducing. We don't find that in, in, in Taoism, but we do find this, you know, this sort of approach to uh uh to to lessen the pressure on our on the world around us. Um and, and also one last thing. So, like sagehood is 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 often the term used to refer to this sort of you know, undoing the the damage that 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 humans have done, that our consciousness has done. Um, now, there's not a whole lot of talk about what a sage would actually look like. It's a bit of a sort of a sort of a, a an abstract category. But I do think that it's going to be very difficult to 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 rhyme sagehood with reproduction. So undoubtedly, when you're actually a Taoist sage, you're participating, you're returning to sort of the the, the thing before humankind. Um, I don't see how you can have kids in that sort of atmosphere. So that's sort of a side effect of comparing these two things. It's not the most important thing, but at the same time, yeah, you can sort of see how Orthodox Taoists would probably not recommend having a whole lot of kids either. Yeah, no, I think that's a very important point. I could definitely see that that that, that as well. You know, in in antinatalist online circles, I believe that this is the paper of yours that I've that I've seen discussed the most. Um, uh, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and 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 it's been very positive from what I've seen. I mean, just right. because uh, if if for no other reason that I think you know people. Uh, there's just been no research into that kind of connection before. I mean, certainly there's been a lot of research into sort of the more. Christian antinatalism side, but comparing it to different, you know, world philosophies or world religions, I mean, it's very, very, very rare. Um, but one thing I have not seen is sort of like, has there been any re reaction from people who are Taoists? I mean, right. have, have you have you gotten any feedback from? I have not received any feedback from from that corner, but um, I was only recently notified that some people were discussing this paper on Reddit. I've not really read the discussion, but uh, I mean, of course, it's wonderful that people are discussing this. If they have any questions, uh, holler at me. <laughs> I'd be glad to to return emails to talk to people about this. I yeah, I, I've not had any uh, 
any any Taoist or people who work on Taoist philosophy reach out to me, uh, maybe in the future. I mean, my door is always open. What I, I absolutely hope that that happens. I mean, I think this really does deserve a a, a lot of much further inquiry, and I, I hope that not only antinatalists, you, I hope that you not only receive that from antinatalists, but also from you know the Taoist community. I think that would be really really fascinating. You know, incidentally, uh, and I'm sorry, this is a little bit tangentially related to the paper, but um, as somebody who has spent, you know, you've spent quite a lot of time in China and that's been a, a huge aspect of, of your life and your work. You know, I was wondering if you had any opinion on how antinatalism is perceived in China and if you've met, you know, Chinese antinatalists or, uh, you know, because it, it uh, I do know of some and there have been some uh, Chinese antinatalist communities uh, online, although it's a bit, kind of hush-hush. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of an interesting circumstance. Do you have any insight into that? So when it comes to antinatalism in Asia, I do know some Japanese antinatalists. Um, to my knowledge, antinatalist philosophy, say the work of Benatar, is not really well known in China. Uh, but obviously the things it talks about uh, do ring a bell because China is, is, is facing a demographic nightmare right now. Um, brought about by a bunch of factors. So I, I, I'm not really aware of any, any organized antinatalist groups there. I, I know some people there who find it interesting. Uh, I do feel, yeah, I, I think I'm justified in saying that it, it, it plays a bigger role in, in other countries than in, in Chinese philosophical uh, circles right now. So... Yeah, of Asian countries, I do. I think I think you're correct that Japan is the one that has a, adopted uh, a, an interest in it the most. And I, yeah, yeah, probably that's that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. All right, interest. Thank you so much. I, I really. I, is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, this particular paper? Before uh, no, no. I think we covered most of the the topics in the paper. So yeah, thanks for the questions. That's, yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank wonderful. you. Thank you so much. Uh, moving on to the next one, um, unfeigning the delusion, antinatalism, and the end of suffering. Abstract. In this article, I explore the antinatalist view according to which it would be better if humans were to stop reproducing in order to contribute to the nonviolent and voluntary extinction of the species as a whole. Not only is reproduction morally problematic in an already vastly overpopulated world, it is held that the human predicament can only be solved by slowly but surely removing human presence altogether. Radical as this might sound, it must be noted that, Far from the villainous distaste of human life and happiness, this view emerges from a careful consideration of the vicissitudes of ordinary human existence. In spite of innumerous earlier attempts, suffering cannot be blotted out in life. What is called for, then, is something more conclusive. We can only remove suffering when we get rid of that which suffers. Any other attempt at solving the human predicament ultimately represents a mere cosmetic approach to problem solving and the eradication of suffering. So yeah, uh, so uh, yeah, I apologize. This one just sort of slipped slipped uh, slipped past me a bit. No is problem. There anything you would like to say about this particular one? Yeah. So this paper, I really continue my line of inquiry from the the South African paper, the Wailing from the Heights of Philae. Um Yeah. Again, I disconnect antinatalism from the, the sort of the emphasis on, on on reproduction on childbirth, and I again argue for the following: If you want to be consistent, if you want to be like a true antinatalist, you have to adopt this sort of philosophical originary. Um, perspective and you cannot be an activist antinatalist if you really want to eradicate suffering um, i mean you can try all sorts of things you can stand on your head for a couple of <laughs> days it's not going to fix the problem of suffering only when we adopt this really strict um sort of objective morally absolute originary philosophical antinatalist perspective can we actually eradicate suffering uh by 
sort of contributing to her own slow but steady extinction. Uh, and ultimately, that's what antinatalism is about. If you read Benatar, it's all about, you know, getting rid of suffering. And uh, so, again, I'm, I'm trying to highlight this, um, sort of contribute to the to the to the debates in, in, in this way. So I think it's also the shortest paper. But I, yeah, I do think it's sufficiently dense that these ideas are sort of all there. Yes, 100%. Um, and, and I mean, we talked a little bit about this uh, previously. I mean, th there's there's antinatalism as it applies to humanity. We talked a little bit about sentiocentric antinatalism. What do you, what are your thoughts on, because I, th I think you do briefly mention this in this paper, like what are your thoughts on antinatalism extending towards, um, you know, an opposition to the creation of sentient machines, like anti-AI natalism? Do you think that that would be, I mean, what are your thoughts on that being a form of antinatalism or or, or so concern for, yeah. for antinatalists? Yeah. So I, I, I find this very interesting. I do share Professor Benatar's idea that he talks about briefly that if we do develop actually conscious AI, we're going to have the same problems that we have, right? So even these machines with consciousness are going to suffer, right? That's just a side effect of, of, of or another side of the conscious coin. Uh, so you cannot be conscious and not suffer. Um, and Benatar unfortunately doesn't spend too much time on discussing this unless he came out with a paper on this uh, in the last couple of weeks and haven't read it um but yeah I, I do i do think that you 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 can only impossibly not suffer when you have some sort of consciousness i and i would agree with that yeah have you just out of curiosity have you read um because no, I, as far as I know, Benatar has not gone further with the, with that particular idea in his own work. But there are others that have, uh, particularly yeah. um, Thomas Metzinger, somebody yep. named Bartek Chemansky. So I mean, mm -hmm. do, do do you feel that that's sort of a, an emergent form of antinatalism? That, oh, absolutely. I, I yeah. think AI everywhere is just exploding right now. So like AI art, AI, all sorts of AI is really hot right now. So it is. Yeah, I think. Studying AI and, and antinatalism in tandem is, is is sort of the next way forward. That's that's super fascinating. I hundred percent agree. Hundred percent agree. So the next paper I want to talk about uh, is "Morality's Collapse: Antinatalism, Transhumanism, and the Future of Mankind." I will briefly read the abstract. Abstract. In the present work, I explore the unignorably momentous responsibility of contemporary philosophy to conclude the project of humanism as inherited from Enlightenment-era thinking. I argue that there are presently two avenues open to us. On the one hand, there is antinatalism, according to which humankind must be gestured towards self-imposed extinction and thereby overcome. On the other hand, there is transhumanism, which inspires the hope that we may transcend any limitation of our being and flourish as a result of radical enhancement, thereby also overcoming humankind. On both accounts, the human is something to be overcome, either negatively, antinatalism, or positively, transhumanism. As both have a common ancestor in radical Enlightenment-era humanism, this choice between radical resignation and affirmation becomes all the more pertinent now that we find ourselves in modernity's wake and in the ruins of morality's collapse. Uh, so uh, when you say conclude the project of humanism as inherited by Enlightenment era thinking, do you mean that the ideas of antinatalism and transhumanism have, have to be defeated to such an extent that something else emerges or that humi humanity may be tasked with having to settle for one of these two extremes? Right, so um, that, that's a very good question. I don't think 
I find it hard to believe that anything comes after this. Like for me, this sort of conflict between anti-natism and transhumanism is the end of philosophy. I think philosophy, you know, has been going on for, let's just say for the sake of convenience, two and a half thousand years. I think every development within um, philosophy over the past two, two and a half thousand years or so now points in this direction. Like everything was just a preparation for this to emerge. And I think we, yeah, this is sort of the, there's three main reasons that I find antinatism interesting. First of all, it's the sort of the connection with Schopenhauer. And secondly, what we talked about is sort of the, how it ties into societal civilizational processes, like the, this people having more autonomy in their choices to reproduce or not. And then thirdly is how it interacts with transhumanism. I think in many senses, transhumanism, antinatism are each other's opposite. Uh, at the same time, they're united because both of them try to sort of overcome the human as it is known. They tr both try to um, sort of cross the boundaries of traditional humankind. And they do so in opposite directions. So antinatism is trying to get rid of the human and transhumanism is, is trying to streamline human existence, make it better, make it faster, uh, make it stronger, all these things. So I think it's fascinating. I don't think we have to settle for either of them. Um, I don't think it, they're that big in society. Obviously, the fact that Elon Musk is investing billions into transhumanist projects means that transhumanism is already winning. It's not really a fair battle. Uh, but I, I don't think it's, it's really going to envelop society as a whole. I think as a philosopher, this sort of conflict, this contrast between these two movements is extremely fascinating. And I'm actually surprised and a little bit annoyed that not more people are sort of researching this, this, this sort of waltz, this waltz of overcoming the human. So, yeah. Oh, I 100% agree with you on, on on that last point. And also that, I I, I mean, yeah, I, where does it go from here? I mean, those really, I think, yeah. are the last two stops. So the fact that so the idea that this is sort of the end of philosophy. Yeah, I don't I don't see how it couldn't be. I agree with you 100% on that. Um, we'll, we'll get to kind of an interesting confluence between transhumanism and antinatalism in a second. Um, but one of the quote from the paper, well, fantasies of human extinction cannot but result from a type of evolutionary mutation, since it counters the very thing that evolution is programmed to achieve, they're strangely seeping into the mainstream. So just a little bit more. I mean, do you do you believe that? I mean, am I understanding this correctly, that you think that antinatalism is a kind of genetic or evolutionary mutation? Um, in, well, I guess we'll move on to the confluence between antinatalism and transhumanism right now. I mean, incidentally, this is not dissimilar to what David Pierce seems to believe. David Pierce, you know, is a transhumanist antinatalist, um, and he believes that uh, he calls himself a soft antinatalist, um, and he he does that because he he doesn't believe that antinatalism can win. And the reason why he doesn't think that antinatalism can win is because of what he calls selection pressures. So basically, if it's so basically the idea is that philosophy is genetic and if antinatalists don't reproduce, then they won't genetically perpetuate antinatalism into the future. And that will only strengthen the natalist genetic programming. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and whether you agree yeah. with that. No, that's fascinating. So I, I don't think there could be like a, a, a genetic mistake that makes us all antinatalists. Uh, but at the same time, what we talked about before, like we've left traditional nature far behind us, right? We make weapons of mass destruction, telescopes, space jets, all sort of things. So it's, it's very clear that we're not really a, a natural species any, anymore. Um, and that's also why we can choose to be antinatalists now. I think everything has led up to this sort of 
um, finale right now where we see antinatalism and transhumanism sort of take over the torch from earlier philosophies. And this is really endgame material right here, I would say. So I don't know what comes after. I just think, yeah, it, 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 the, the time is now ripe to really look at these movements in, 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 in unison. Um, and this could not have emerged at any earlier time. So I think now we can fully, finally transcend our traditional role as, as, as being a part of this animal kingdom and sort of take it to its to its extreme and say, well, we, how we've always been, uh, we don't like this anymore. We want to be something else or we don't want to be at all. So, I, and again, that, that plays into like, what, you know, other lar more large scale processes where people can now finally criticize this, this sort of taken for granted decision to have kids, right? Before people would just have 10 kids and not think about it. And now you can say, well, I don't want to have 10 kids. Maybe I just want to have one or two or none at all. Um, so that, that all sort of relates to each other. And I find that super fascinating. Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, I mean, going back to Pierce briefly, what, what do you think of the idea of that an antinatalist could be both antinatalist and transhumanist? Do you think that that's a, I mean, there is a lot of debate whether that's even really realistically possible. I mean, do you, do you think that there's a possible middle ground between those two views? I I, I struggle with this as well because I find transhumanism very interesting, but I would also call myself maybe like a, like a non-practicing transhumanist. Uh, I don't have like a big laboratory here where I, I really try to calibrate my uh, my existence. Um, I don't know. I, I find it difficult. I do think what um, what unites transhumanism and antinatalism is that they radically critique critique sorry traditional human existence. So they both want to go beyond the human as we know the human. So that is interesting. That could, yeah, that leads me to believe that you can be a bit of both. Uh, but it's 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 tough. Like it's I think we have to think long and hard about how this would be possible. Because at the end of the day, transhumanism and antinatalism are opposed to each other. Like yeah, they they they're two sides of this sort of neo nihilist coin uh, because they both claim that human existence is insufficient. Right. So we either have to make it better or just retire this whole thing uh, and stop the show. So that that's definitely something that unites these both views, but at the same time, they, they go in very different directions. A hundred percent. Do you have an opinion on, I mean, do, do you think that one is more dangerous than the other? Obviously transhumanism is, 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 is very dangerous. When we uh, bring in like, for me, antinatism is pretty harmless. People are always like lamenting how, how, you know, or like whining about how dangerous this is. And it's, I mean, it is radical, but it's not, I don't think it's dangerous per se. Transhumanism obviously is because people are already investing hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars into this. So people are actually making a case for this. People are actually like building all sorts of facilities and doing experiments. And um, yeah, I think there's one harmless component of transhumanism, one that's more far-fetched and like earth shattering. Because I do think when you take a bunch of supplements that, that like resveratrol, I don't know if you've heard of this. Uh, this is something I take every day as well. It's one of the sort of the, the it's, it's stuff that's in red wine, for instance. So you take the supplement. It's, it's a good part of red wine. You don't get drunk. It doesn't increase your cholesterol or anything. Um, that's a supplement that apparently is, is super helpful. And I do take this. So like, is that dangerous? Probably not. Um, but then when you talk about like, I don't know, like cyborg humans and then and, and AI chips in our brains. That's obviously very dangerous. I, I, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I, I, 
I can definitely see ways in which that antinatalism could become quite dangerous. But yeah. what it's not doing is proposing to play with, you know, forms of suffering hitherto unknown. I mean, the failures of a transhumanist world are more terrifying to me than anything that an antinatalist world could possibly produce. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, at the yeah. end of an antinatalist world, it does it does end. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's I mean, it's, <laughs> there is there is a stopping point to the existence of suffering. Whereas, yeah. I, 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 it's it's refreshing to hear you say what you what you just have because I feel like there's a certain there's a certain there's often a certain um rosiness to the way people talk about transhumanism where it, mm -hmm. it, it couldn't it couldn't possibly be a difficult path towards utopia and i can't imagine that that's true i i, I just really feel like there's there's every possibility in the world that there's going to be a lot of suffering yeah, on the way yeah. to that to that betterment right so yeah i i, I think it's it's the funny thing is actually uh, the failure of the of the antinatus project is going to be harmless, right? Because no harm is literally going to be done uh, other than the harm already served, meaning that we suffer. Um, but the failure of the transhumanist project is going to be a catastrophe. That's uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we may end up in a far worse state. Uh, I mean, coincidentally, the failure of the transhumanist project might herald in the success of the antinatus movement. But it could lead to the destruction of us all, and then anti-natism would have been successful so that's also an interesting interaction between these movements i suppose that's very that's very possible and at the, at the same time if i can still add a failure of the, the anti-natism movement or project is also going to play into the hands of transhumanists where they say okay no one is still vouching for our extinction that means we have to go forward go on and on and just keep calibrating our our, our, our traditional existence and I and I and I think that's exactly if I I mean I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting his views, but I think that's sort of where David Pierce begins, that he's already right. sort of sort of um dubbed the whole thing a failure. You know, that you know, he I mean he's he's said on multiple occasions if he could if he could press the red button, you know, or 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 be sort of a uh, if he believed that Benetarianism could win, that's the path that he would take. But he's taken yeah. sort of transhumanist roads instead because Fair enough. Yeah. that's where it sort of left us. So yeah, yep. interesting. Yeah, yeah. 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 Thank you so much for your thoughts on that. Yeah, so, thank you. Too. Absolutely. So uh so we have one more paper to to talk about. Um, and this is actually a book chapter that you were so yeah. very generous to share with me. Thank you so much. It is called under lion's skin or fox's fur antinatalism transhumanism and the emergence of 21st century neo-nihilism um first off is, is the neo-nihilism a a reference to koenig no no it's not no i i, I yeah just that's i don't know no it's just it's just i like the term it's yeah. not a specific reference to anyone uh Okay. Work. Okay. Yeah. I, just, I just was curious. So yeah, so this is, uh, you know, this is your newest contribution. Um, and uh, this is part of a book that is going to be called Technology, Users and Uses, Ethics in and Human Interaction. Before I read the abstract and we talk a little bit about the paper, could you tell me something about the book project and how your, you know, your paper fits into the, the bigger picture of that project? Um, and just, yeah. just anything like tell me about it. Sure. No. So it's a very interesting book, and the uh, the people working on this, like the editors, are very nice people as well. So I started working on this probably about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, it's going to be published sometime soon. So one of these days, it's going to be uh, it's going to hit the shelves. Uh, so I'm very proud to be to, to be a part of this work. So they look at technological challenges, obstacles, um, and how we respond to these without 
being super technical ourselves, right? So we're not really looking at, at sort of the, the perimeters of AI, like in how many years is it going to be successful? Uh, but we're going to, we, yeah, what I did in this chapter is sort of look at how this conflict between transhumanism and antinatalism plays out with a particular emphasis on the emergence of AI. And again, like, I think we talked about some of these topics already, like, yeah, AI is also going to suffer. That's fair enough. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it does sort of indicate that transhumanism is a bit more dangerous. Um, and there's a bit more at stake when we consider transhumanism as well. So that's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating analysis. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in the addition of, of, of nihilism, neo-nihilism. Is, is that something we haven't really discussed yet? Um, and, and, you know, um, we have addressed, I think, in, in fashion a, a, a lot of, of what's what was covered in this paper in, in, in pre- previously. Um, but I'm, I'm again, I'm curious about the addition of nihilism. I'm, I'm just curious in hearing more about how all of these different elements sort of fit together within that paper, if you'd like to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So so for me, neo-nihilism really continues earlier nihilist trends. I think what it boils down to nowadays, why it's neo-nihilism is because people don't just criticize this or that aspect of human existence, but human existence in itself is, is quite severely critiqued, right? So what antinatalism and transhumanism share is that both want to go beyond the human, um, either negatively in the case of antinatalism or positively uh, in the case of transhumanism, where they say, well, humankind is flawed, human existence is horrible, but we're going to make it better. Um, and antinatalism says, yeah, I mean, human life is horrible, we're a horrible species. We cannot make it better because we've tried and we've failed. And the only way forward is to, to, to lead to our own extinction. Um, and then you get to all sorts of philosophical dilemmas. Like, could you have some sort of an AI world where people just live mentally or digitally and they don't have bodies to make them suffer? There's going to be all sorts of other different sufferings in that uh, horrible world without bodies as well. So that's basically been sort of the, the, the angle I take in this work. Um, but of course, I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm doing much more research into this sort of connection between AI, transhumanism, antinatalism. So it's still a work in progress, I'd say, because I'm still working on this and sort of sharpening my 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 thoughts about this. Brilliant. Well, I mean, that leads me to my next question. I mean, um, well, first off, you know, again, congratulations on this new ch- the new chapter of this book. Yeah, um, cheers, thank you. Absolutely. So, I mean, what what is what is next for you, Robert? What are you working on on now? If I may ask. Right. So hopefully at the end of this year, another uh, book chapter is going to be published. This is going to be in a uh, uh, work on Chinese philosophy. So there I look at post-humanism, transhumanism, um, um, Taoism, the Lao Tzu, other works. So this is going to be possibly the chapter I'm most proud of. Um, I'll send you a copy when it's uh, when it's uh, all finished. I would love that. And I'm, writing my, and I'm writing my first book, which is a novel. So it's Excellent. called Immenses of Clamor. Um, yeah, I try to just put in a lot of philosophical ideas that I'm playing with in literary form. So that's, uh, I, I, I do think it's easier to write literature than philosophy, obviously. Um, it's harder to put your finger on, on, on like the sore spot and like what exactly is he saying here? But that's something I've been working on for the last five years. Hopefully next summer it's, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be out. So I'll, I'll be sure to send you a copy of this one as well. I, I would absolutely love that. Congratulations. That's extremely cool. exciting. That's really cool. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's really cool to see you kind of making that that's that switch from philosophy writing to some fiction. That's excellent. Um, do you believe that antinatalism will continue to be a, an important part of your work moving forward? Oh, 100 percent. 
I'm not letting go now. So I, th I think if it, it's been with me for the past couple of years and these years have been really formative for me in like, like creating my own philosophical identity. So I'm not going to leave this behind anytime soon. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly like reading new work about antinatalism. Um, so I'm still very much, yeah, just, just active in this, this scene. And I don't foresee any change in this anytime soon, to be honest. So, yeah. I, I love hearing that. You know, I, 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 Ultimately, I don't, you know, I don't care if somebody is anti-antinatalist, if they're anti-natalist, if they're if they're a non-practicing antinatalist, it's the passion for the subject that I like to see, no matter sort of where you fall on that spectrum. So that's so exciting. I, I'm so excited to see where your work on the subject takes you. That's great. And I'll, I'll definitely be reading along and following. Um, how can our audience best support the works that you've done? I mean, are there places online that people can find you and follow your work? Um, yeah. How can people, how can people yeah, so, keep up? I mean, first and foremost, they can find me on academia.edu. I think that's a bit of a an easy um, easy way to find me. Uh, yeah, the best way people can can support my work is to criticize it. Just unleash hell on my work. Um, <laughs> you know that uh, that would be the best for you. acknowledgement, for you. the best recognition I can I can imagine. So just tear my work apart and just uh, yeah, write the nastiest things about me. That's uh, I'll be a happy man. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I hope that people will be kinder than that. Um, but ho <laughs> but hopefully, after watching this, uh, people, I know there's so much more we could have we could have delved into. Like I said, there's 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 so much in your work that deserves uh, far greater uh, exploration and, and and detailed discussion. But I hope that today has served as a bit of a, uh, an overview of the work that you've done on the subject, and I hope that people will be inspired to contact you and to read your papers and to give you some feedback. Uh, so, Robert, thank you so much for being my guest today on the. Exploring Antinatalism podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to finally meet you and speak to you about the work that you've done. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. It's been lovely uh, talking to you about this. Uh, hope to stay in touch. I'll, I'll keep you updated about my new work and uh, yeah, I'll keep watching your podcast as well. If you uh, have another guest that's sick at the last moment, you need somebody, somebody to replace him, let me know. Be happy to do this. But uh, yeah, I hope we can continue our conversation about antinatalism. And uh, yeah, hopefully see you next time. See you next time for sure. I'd absolutely love that. Thank you so much, Robert. Cool. All, All right, right, Amanda. Bye-bye. <laughs> See you. Have a good day. Yeah, Cheers. you as well, Robert. Take your care. Yeah. Thank you again. All right. Thank you for listening to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. Please follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Exploring Antinatalism can also be heard on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon.com, and so many other platforms. You can email me at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com, website designed by Visions Noirs. Please follow him at www.bionoir.com and follow him on Instagram. Logo art by Life Sucks. Please subscribe to him on YouTube and check out his shop on Etsy at www.etsy.com slash shop slash Life Sucks Publishing. Music by Mati Hairi. You can hear the whole song, Life is a Sexually Transmitted Disease with a Mortality Rate of 100% by following the link in the description. And make sure to also read his academic paper, which inspired the song, If You Must Give Them a Gift, Then Give Them the Gift of Non-Existence, in the Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics on cambridge.org. Links below. All the best, and bye for now. Life is no thrill It's worse than meal So draw the right conclusion Let there be still